0: The police moved in on them unprovoked just a second ago.
1: We don't want a loop. That's not what we're out here for. But we do want justice and we want equality. And if we don't get that, we're going to be out here. We've been hit with rubber bullets. We've had tear gas fly in the air. Colorado has issued a state of emergency. The National Guard has been authorized. We have state police. About an hour
0: ago, Lester, a truck driver drove into the crowd, scattering thousands of people. Now, fortunately, we've just confirmed no one was Andrew injured. Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, to Eric Garner on Staten Island, to the protests in Baltimore after the death of Freddie. Police are trying to push these pockets of crowds out of certain areas. It is a very they're cruel
1: asking and- for equality. They are peacefully asking for equal rights when it comes to Black Americans and their treatment. By- I'm a self Chris I'm from the ages 15 to 20. You're tired of this shit. You cannot continue to oppress. Down, marginalized, redlined, and kill people and think we ain't gonna stand up and eventually fight back.
2: The first time Spike and I met for an interview, I walked into his home and he immediately started showing me around. We went down down into his basement where I was overwhelmed by the amount of awards, accolades, and pictures everywhere.
1: everywhere. People sent me articles. And they would send me
2: these pictures. artifacts I serve never, as a testament to who Spike but has been be and what he has meant pain. to Minneapolis oh, over the last few well, decades.
1: This is where I was bringing them together across the country. That's it right there. I'm bringing together all the gangs all across the country. That's me right there. This one here, I'm in Ohio. That's Joseph Laurie, Southern Mm. Christian membership. Yeah. He followed me and spoke. Dick Gregory followed me and spoke. This is Prince Isiel.
2: Spike invited me into his home and and showed me all the photographs and memorializations of the countless ways in which he fought for the Black and Native Native populations of Minneapolis. He walks me through history,
1: through the countless ways in which he engaged with the community
2: and his limitless levels of activism.
1: Well, you know, most people, to do that body of work, most people think you're just bragging. How could you do all that work? But you know, when God gets in the mix, you can do anything you want. Brother, you have the money he gives you away. You know what I'm saying? And that's how I saw it, brother.
2: Many of the collaborations, festivals, bands, and summits that Spike created and engaged in were born out of The Way. Established in 1965 on the north side of Minneapolis, The Way is an organization that functioned to create a space in the neighborhood where city leaders could come together to cultivate racial pride among African-American youth. The Way sought to touch every part of a kid's life, from beauty pageants to music lessons, athletics, tutoring, anything positive a kid could need or want. It was at The Way. Prior to The Way, Spike had already been engaging the community for years. This only helped to expand his reach as he fought to dismantle racial discrimination inside as well as outside of Minnesota. The Way cycled through a handful of executive directors, with Spike being their last prior to their closing in 1984. Here is one of the former executive directors, T. Well, Williams. During my tenure there, in 1966,
0: uh, in August, I think it was, loud. we had uh, a small, they call it a riot, uh, I call it street, uh, street violence, uh, on Plymouth Avenue. It lasted that night. And a couple of stores were, windows were broken, I think there may have been one or two fires there so, and it was contained within about a three block uh, area. Era. And so, but that was, people were really upset about that. Uh, they they didn't think it would happen we're on both sides, Blacks and white. How could that happen in liberal limbo, Minneapolis? And, but it did happen. And so people came out into the community and they were, wondering what, what, what cost it? And what can we do? And, and the youth were, mostly uh, the ones up on, on the avenue were young people i said from about the ages of 13 to 19. and uh and they it started from a small confrontation with police and and as usual police mishandled those situations and and this was in the summertime and and stuff was happening all across the country you know big stuff you know in and, and uh, uh, cleveland and and uh, uh, uh Newark and, 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 uh, and all over, and much uh, worse than what happened here, but people were concerned. And that sprung uh, on one of the places that were, uh, were uh, damaged uh, later became uh, the, the headquarters of uh, the home for a new agency called The Way. And that, that street violence gave birth to the way, because what, what the youth were saying at that time was that by and large that the older uh, institution, even the one that I was running, did not reflect their, their interests. And uh, they needed something that they could call their own.
2: One big thing Spike did in his time was the summer festival he put on a free festival every year for the community that featured some of the biggest bands of the era. The Miss Minnesota Beauty Pageant, dance competitions, and so much more. It was a day of fun and celebration for the community, but most importantly, peace. Spike never had to deal with problems of violence at any of these events because everyone knew that was neither the time nor the place for it. While in the role of youth director, Spike focused on the youth and recreation department, which provided opportunities for athletic activities and music and instrument practice. Spike, tell me about about The Way, Mm -hmm. this program that existed in Minneapolis that you created. Tell me about all the different things that went on there.
1: Well, first of all, we did kids football every age group. We did kids baseball every age group. We did boxing every age group, and we did drum and bugle corps with, with girl majorettes. Uh, we also did uh, modeling shows. We did, did Black History Productions where you've seen the kids sing, dance, and model. Uh, we had our own girls' African dance group. We had our own rhythm and blues dance groups. We had break dance groups for the boys. Uh, we had semi-pro basketball. We had semi-pro football. We had semi-pro bowling for men and women. We had women's teams, men's team. We had um, a rec room that had the, the pinball, ping pong, and the pool. And we did dances Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. We did our music class in the back of the room to teach them how to play and put them together to be in bands. And there was a white lady who her husband was Walker, and they had a place called the Walker Art Institute. She would, when I got the bands ready, buy the equipment so we could be a band, and all you have to do is name yourself now, now that you graduated. Uh, We did that Northside picnic. We did the Summer Fun Fest. We did the uh, Youth Appreciation Day. We did Juneteenth called Freedom Day. Uh, We did Little Miss Northside and Miss Black Minnesota. Um, There was very little that a kid would want that we didn't have. We had the bike races, street races. We had concerts on the side of the way and then we had concerts down in Bethune Park called Phyllis Wheatley. That was the biggest festival we did every year, Northside Summer Fun Fest. We were successful in all these things we did, and we moved everybody around everywhere. Not just our bands, all of our athletes moved around for tournaments, we did all of that. And we did that all year, every year. We never missed a year of any of that. When I got busy with with, with, with Terry Lewis, look at the size of his family, there was quite a few kids in that family. But Terry never ever acted like, he, he could run track, you fire a gun, you can't catch Terry Lewis. You get into football, you can't catch Terry Lewis. He wasn't just no bass player and a great writer. You should have seen him as a kid. But if you hit him with all of where he really
2: was, he wouldn't be successful. The Way's work was in all realms of creativity and gave these youths a place to find themselves. Outside of their day-to-day lives, it was a place to do something they wanted to do. Spike himself even sacrificed a career in music to pursue the movement towards civil rights and help create the Way.
1: But I did 18 and a half years of music, and in my music school almost all them kids were successful at one level or another, and I produced eight to nine bands a year. And every single year for 18 and a half years, we were making eight to nine bands a year, and there's more kids than that to get in bands in the class. So the back room was the class area. And uh, then we were putting them on the street and taking them on the road. And then we were putting them on the stage with stars. That's what we did. That's
2: what we did. Spike had some legends come through his door at The Way. We're talking about THE Prince, THE Sonny Thompson, THE Terry Lewis, THE Jimmy Jam, the sounds of Blackness. Many greats came from The Way. Now we hear Spike talk more specifically on Prince and his introduction into The Family, one of Spike's best bands had
1: Prince, right? Yeah. I had him at 12 years old. The best band I ever had was called The Family. I put him in the band called The Family. And he traveled with them even though he was young. He traveled with them. But my best memory of Prince is he'd be the first one at class talking about Spike, we got class today. And I said, yes, sir. And he'd go on inside. He loved music. He was going to be, you know, what made him great was the fact that uh, my class was ran by jazz musicians so you couldn't lose because mm. jazz musicians learn how to read and write at levels that no other musicians learn, they're yeah. real musicians no machines and they also create levels of music that are not invented while they're playing on stage Yeah. so I wanted my kids to learn that because if you learn that no matter what your music genre is, you're going to be an expert that's why Princeton was the way they were, he'd be one of the first there but but like his sister, Tyka told me, she says, Spike, we didn't just do that. You fed us. <laughs> we come there to get that lunch and breakfast, she said to me, one day his sister, Tyker. And I did feed the kids, but I mean, he was there like nobody beat him there. He loved music. He was coming along so fast, I put him in the best band I had, the family.
2: The family was a collection of talent that showed a wide range of versatility. Everything from new wave to up-tempo funk and soul ballads. They really shined in their eponymous 1985 album. The Way was more than just an organization that let kids do activities. It was an outlet from their home lives. If Prince
1: really had to hold on to that life he had at home, he wouldn't have been successful. But when he found what made him click, music, Then the best of Prince came out. Like a sister told me, Tyka one day, she called me up. She said, Spike, I gotta talk to you about what? We just had the biggest argument at home. I said, what's it about? Prince is changing his name to a symbol and we are all pissed that he's changing his name to a symbol, you are Prince. We are not gonna call you nothing else and we're just going at it, Spike. Okay, so what you upset about? We not. I called you because Prince stopped us in the middle of the argument and he said, Don't y'all remember Spike? And we said, yes. He taught me to never let nobody make me a slave.
2: Another musician Spike worked with was Sonny Thompson.
1: The best musician I ever had my hands on in my life, that everybody will tell you in Minnesota, is Sonny Thompson. He was in junior high school when I got him. He learned just like I planned every instrument he could possibly play. He learned music to the point where he was greater than great. A lot of people play, play great, but he actually mastered what he was doing. He mastered it. And so he became the most important lead teacher.
2: If you've been enjoying this podcast, please be sure to rate and review us. It helps with the algorithm and allows more people to find out about the Labor Forward podcast. A prominent aspect of the Youth and Recreation Center at The Way was weekly sessions dedicated to combating youth drug and alcohol use, since accessibility to drugs began to rise as a means of controlling the Black population and overall Black Power movement. This led to his supplemental participation in another organization, focusing on providing culturally specific substance use disorder treatment, housing, and support services.
1: And so for 41 years, going on 42 now, I've been doing group therapy 10, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 men at a time. I did those groups every single week, four times a month or eight times a month to save as many young men as I could from being addicted because this is chemical warfare, so you won't stand up. The heroin, was dumped because they knew they could control the civil rights movement, but they couldn't control the Black Power Movement and young blacks were going there. And they saw that as more radical. So they flooded our communities from New York to California with heroin. Our kids knew nothing about marijuana. All of a sudden, they tagging that arm. You know what I'm saying? And we lost thousands across this country. The marijuana that came through between the 60s and the 70s, it had embalming fluid in it. The marijuana that came between the 80s and 90s, that had a uh, rat killer in it. And when we hit the 2000s, that had weed killer in it. In Minnesota,
2: the snow itself can't kill wild weed. It is no secret by now that the influx of drugs into inner city neighborhoods in the 70s and 80s was a direct effort to hurt Black life and diminish Black progress.
1: We didn't just want to go to restaurants and sit down with white people. We wanted to own it. We didn't want to be busted at schools. We want our schools to be better with black teachers. We didn't want to just rent in the white neighborhood. We wanted to own property. See what I'm saying? So we weren't trying to get in your clubs. We wanted the money for our own club. We didn't want to just vote. We wanted to run for office. So we were dangerous. See, we didn't want to go to the bank. We wanted the bank, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? So we were dangerous. So what you going to do, you're going to medicate us out of of, um, condition and out of sight on this world. And we're gonna be either dead or prison. And that's what happened to us. Because you changed our lives with the madness of drugs to slow
2: it down. The drugs that were all too accessible to Northside youth were one of the many factors of oppression. Additional circumstances were also prevalent, such as the role of gangs, which has been a focus for Spike not only in Minneapolis but nationwide.
1: Well, because I felt that if if you're selling tennis shoes, you're a merchant that sells tennis shoes. So if you're selling something deadly you're a merchant of death and I need you to stop killing your people I need you to stop you know when you destroy the father with a family then how does the family survive how do they keep their home how do they keep groceries how do you keep your car if he dies or goes to jail you got to start all over again as a mama all by yourself if you destroy that mama those kids have no mother to mother them to the age where they can stand up on their own. So you're destroying the entire family when you destroy one or two of them with them drugs. Our people were talking about, no, but that's that's money. I'm getting my money on. You'd rather get your money on and destroy your brothers and sisters? And we were so busy talking about the condition that the white man put us under that we thought we had a right to medicate and destroy and kill our people. And we engaged in it.
2: Spike was quoted in an LA Times article back in 1993 saying, "Gangs are nothing but a symptom of our oppression." And he took that understanding and transferred it into the founding of United for Peace, as well as the organization of the Kansas City Gang Summit, a meeting with aims to bring peace and among gangs to work one and one major day and cities.
1: And I noticed all these gang kids in the building. So I went to Jim Nelson, who was the president, he made me a vice president. I said, "Jim, we got a gang problem." He said, where? I said, in the building. What? I said, yeah, in the building. We're going to have to put together a program and deal with this. So we sent a proposal out and we did a program called At-Risk Youth Service. Well, by the time I got started, I realized it's bigger. (laughs) There was so many branches of vice lords, so many branches of disciples. There was different branches of bloods. There was different branches of Crips. I said, oh, we got to create a way to bring them together. So we brought them together under the name United for Peace. So I got me some money to go to Washington, DC. I'm gonna do a national press conference at the National Press Club in Washington and announce to the world that I'm bringing forth gang summits. And if you're a city or a state with this problem, here's how you contact me to do a summit in your city. And with that, I moved from Washington right into Kansas City. I chose Kansas City not only because it was my home state, but it was the middle of the country. So when you come to the middle of the country, I was dealing with um, the leadership of all these gangs across the country. If you could get them there, then you could approach the body without losing your life because you got permission to save as many of them boys and girls as you can save. And luckily for me, everybody was signing up. And the only state I didn't have was was LA. So someone told me, they said, Spike, you got to talk to Jim Brown. I said, about what? The great Jim Brown, the football player he said, yeah, Jim Brown, I know can introduce you to them brothers out there that you don't know. And I said, I called Jim Brown, I introduced myself. And he said, I'll tell you what, brother, tell me the day you're coming, I'll have all the leaders at my house so you can meet them at one time and tell them what your intentions are. So I've got some brothers together and we flew out there. We went up in the mountains to his beautiful house out on the deck and that's where I want him over. And then the gangs that weren't there, he gave me a brother named Rockhead, another one named Twilight Bay. Um, They took me into the areas where some of the rough gangs were that weren't in the room. And he said, these two can take you there and not get hurt and you not get hurt and get you back safely. I got in a van with them and I made those stops. And in Kansas City, everybody arrived, everybody arrived. And that's what kicked off the national Peace and Justice Summit
2: Another event that Spike created was Miss Black Minnesota.
1: Well the importance of Miss Black Minnesota this was a white world. They projected white dolls, white models, white beauty and black girls were being crushed their self-esteem their pride and their motivation so I said I'm gonna do Miss Black Minnesota and lift them up in every way and make the show great and great prizes and get the families out to praise them and lift them up. Not the scandalous pageant, but a real black pageant. What do you know about black history? (laughs) Give her a black history question. You know what I'm saying? And so from that, I needed a feeder. So I said, let's do Little Miss Northside and we can feed from there into the pageant so we can lift our girls. Our girls are right back where I started uh, being disrespected never protected, not love, not wanted. Nobody lift them. They need to do that all over again because this girl scarred so bad, she calls herself the B word. I was trying to make sure they understood black beauty, black pride, black love. She calls herself the B word. So we don't went backwards. But But the one thing I say about it, brother, when you look at that, that just goes to show you that if you would do what I did over again, it would work again. The only difference is the hole's deeper, but you can get them out of it.
2: I think what led Spike to be so inspired to help so many people and so many Black youths, even deciding to give up his own pursuit in music, was the mentors he had. His own mentors that led him to where he is now gave him the motivation to do the same thing for these children. He understood, like so many of us, the need to pay it forward. That in order for us to progress as a people, we have to lift up those behind us. Spike's life is marked by perpetual uplift.
1: Mentors saved me. The black church saved me. My parents saved me. The neighborhood saved me. You know what I'm saying? The people I ran with, my coach, Ray Wells, when I went into amateur boxing, I'm coming out of junior going gloves. And um, at 15, you gotta go. So Ray said, you need to come on up to our area and let us train you your next phase. And I said, I don't know if my mom want me to be, cause 15, you're gonna box with 15 to 26 year old men. I don't know if my mom let me do that. You, you think I can come over there and talk to your mama? I said, yes. He came over and he told my mom what he wanted. And then he said these words, I will train him, I will teach him, I would protect him. He'll be in this house at nine. He won't be exposed to no alcohol, no booze, no nothing. He'll come training and I'll make sure he's back home. From that day, he taught me, talked to me, I had a second father. When I went into the movement and I would go on big marches, he would pull up right next to me in the front line. He was not going to ever leave my side or let anything happen to me. One day on a march, the Nazis attacked the front of the line. He stepped up and knocked him out, the leader. You know what I'm saying? He loved me that much as a poor kid. He seen I was a poor kid. He wanted me on his team, but he chose me to be the broke kid he's going to mentor. And he mentored me my whole life. And so, to me, I'm just giving back to all the Blacks that influence every piece of my life, my uncle, my grandparents, my mother, my father, my, my friends, everybody who influenced me, I'm still carrying them forward. And I, I talk about them to everybody it's because I want you to become them because your job is to teach them. And I'm saying, it's worth more than gold.
2: We've got a generation or generations of kids, little Black kids in this country, growing up with no hope. No hope at all. And when you have hopeless conditions, you get the same thing every time. It doesn't matter what race you are. If the conditions are hopeless, if the kids see no way out, you get gang violence, you get drug use, or you get a rise in crime. It's the same across every race because it's a, it's a matter of hope. The Way gave these kids a place to find hope. However, there are still these systems of oppression in this country that work against Black people thriving. Decades of government-backed policies have trickled down through generations. When you measure things like life expectancy, health indicators, wage, income, poverty, education, incarceration rates, and just about anything you can think of, I don't know if there is a single quality of life metric in which Black people don't come out on the bottom or near it. This is a direct result of years of systemic oppression.
1: Well, the reason, one of the reasons we suffer the way we do, we moved away from something our ancestors brought here with them, and that's this language. I am my brother's keeper. We left that African tradition, family, So it was in about the 80s when this thing came out, I got mine, you get yours. So you got no way. You have the means, but you have no way. Now what I mean by that? Football players make millions, boxers make millions, basketball players make millions, but you don't know how to put it on the table and do. Case in point, we don't need your money. We need you to put the money in a bank that pays the highest interest, Put it in a CD account so we can use that bank money. Keep your money. We can't even think like that. You realize if you got $100 million, how much money you make in 60 to 90 days in a CD account alone, and once you donate it to help your people, and you still get your money. We we don't need your money. We just need to put it down. Keep your money. But allow us to make this money. So what? To build an economic base. So we're not totally dependent on the person that wants us dead. If I see you progressing in a positive way, I'm going to follow you. But if I can't see it, these kids can't see it because white folks tore down our business back in the 50s. And it never came back. They never even knew we had black business. Hell, we had 12 black clubs and we didn't have the population of Milwaukee. See what I'm saying? But the, the the drive and the motivation of them old folks, put it all here. White folks
2: tore it all down. They went over St. Paul and tore it all down. See? you know, that's, uh, that's something that we see in history across this country, thriving black communities burned down by white people. We saw it in Tulsa, we saw it in Rosewood, we saw it in East St. Louis, over and over you get these black communities that are thriving. Remember I said, your rise is his fall, And as long as he thinks that,
1: he will demolish, get rid of, deny you, red, uh, what they call it, redline you, everything he can to stop that rise. However, if you don't need him, because you put the money over here, redline, and you ain't got to come to him, you'd have built everything you need the way our people did when they didn't have nothing. You can't say nothing, nothing leaves nothing. They came from nothing and made something. We won't even do. We, we give our money to everything we don't need and don't give our money to what we need. See, so we built some churches. We oh, just God. won't build no economic
2: base. See? We we need more black banks, more black laundromats, more everything. black everything. Whatever
1: services you, if he stops talking to you tomorrow and cuts you off, you can't get a loaf of bread, <laughs> see? And so I'm just saying that um, everybody makes their way through the world. We're not less than a bird that makes a nest. Make your nest, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The bird, What? what is the bird's brain? The size of a peanut or something? And he knows how to make a nest? You don't know how to make a nest.
2: And this system and the oppression is beyond Minnesota. It's in all aspects of American life. There is a reason Black people can meet each other from the most disparate parts of the country and still find commonality. There is a shared Black experience that is unique here. We are not a monolith. Not every experience is exactly the same, but consensus matters. If 90 to 95% of us are saying the same thing, perhaps it's time to listen. And what we
1: gotta understand as a people, Whatever goes wrong on the East Coast makes sense. Okay? From this perspective, there is no part of the country that has dealt with dark-skinned people longer than the East Coast. That's where we were dropped off. So the heat, the the, the hate runs deep for decades. Anything that you could tell me negative from the East Coast, oh yeah. And they hated they had to let you go. Think about walking down the streets in Washington or or Philly or somewhere on that cobblestone. What would that remind you of? Slave hands. (laughs) Think about looking at the city of of Washington designed by Banneker. It's going to bother you. So the hate has never been allowed to leave there. You know, and I'm talking about there's no part of the East Coast that ain't just nasty because we had let them go. We had them do this. We had them do that. They need to be our niggas again. How about that? So it's a different type of hate there. And it's older than all the rest of the way across the country because that's where it began. It, it didn't begin in Mississippi.
2: <laughs> and whether you are in New York or North Carolina, it's the same. It just looks different. It's dressed a little different, but the racism in this country, especially on the East Coast, it just it runs deep.
1: I believe what I said to you earlier, they have no other culture. What they created as their culture is hate and racism. Now, if I'm wrong, why were you doing that before you came to America? Why were you that hateful before you got here? Why did you put together the Christian crusade? (laughs) That's a long time of hate, boy.
2: There's a lot that has to be done in order to see equality in a nation that has been unequal from day one. Inequality is baked into the culture. You see it everywhere from the wealth gap to the quality of schools to the simple fact that every wealthy area has a poor one nearby because somebody's got to serve them. And in this country, those somebodies are disproportionately black and brown. But as Spike said, so what can we do? In our next episode, we will talk about education and where we are now. Minneapolis Burning is written and produced by me, C.J. Quarterbaum. Audio mixing by Rob Peterzak. Made possible with support by Entertainment to Effect Change, E2AC on campus, and of course, Labor Forward. For more information on Spike Moss and to support Labor Forward, please visit us at laborforward.org. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Labor Forward.